and we are so busy working in it, we don't take time to work on it. And as a result, we don't really own businesses. Most farms and ranches are not businesses. They are just a giant collection of very expensive assets and a whole bunch of low-paying, physically demanding jobs. Welcome to the 308th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Dave Pratt is not afraid to deflate a few myths when it comes to the economics of farming and ranching. Spend any length of time with the financial and grazing expert, and you're likely to walk away questioning your own beliefs about what makes a business a real business, if hard work always pays off, whether you own the farm or whether it owns you, and the difference between equal and fair. Dave has acres of experience to back up his assertions, many of which go against the grain of what we consider successful farming and ranching. Dave is a highly sought-after speaker on regenerative agriculture and profitable ranching. He's taught the Ranching for Profit School in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Australia, and Africa. Dave grew up on a small ranch and worked for cattle and sheep ranchers in Northern California, where he learned ranching from the bottom up. In addition to his practical roots, he holds degrees from the University of California and Washington State University. A range and livestock advisor with the University of California Cooperative Extension Service for 15 years, he researched cell grazing and strategic issues impacting the sustainability of ranches. In 1991, Dave began working with Stan Parsons, the founder of Ranch Management Consultants, and started teaching at the Ranching for Profit School in 1992. He eventually purchased Ranch Management Consultants and managed it for several years. Dave has recently sold the business, but he still works as one of its instructors. The Land Stewardship Project's Soil Health Program recently invited Dave Pratt to Red Wing, Minnesota, to lead a workshop entitled Three Secrets for Increasing Farm Profit. During the program, he used a combination of humor, personal experience, and nuts and bolts financial analysis to help participants take steps toward working on transforming their farm business from being just a collection of assets and hard work to an enterprise that's sustainable financially, environmentally, and from a quality of life point of view. Before the workshop, Dave sat down with me to burst a few bubbles. Among other things, he talked about the difference between working in your business as opposed to on it, why survival of the fittest does not apply to agriculture, and the reason we should aspire to have tax problems. So Dave, we're talking a little bit, it's the night before you're going to give a presentation. We've got over 100 people signed up for this uh, presentation. There's a lot of excitement over some of the stuff you're going to be talking about. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the difference between working on the business as opposed to working in the business. Those are two very important words, on and in. Well, let me start by giving credit where credit is due. That's a concept that was, at least I first heard it from a fellow named Michael Gerber in a book called The E-Myth Revisited. I think it's probably the best book ever written on small business development. Mm -hmm. We coined the terms Whitby for working in the business and Whatby for working on the business. Working in the business is doing all the technical work. If you think about the most famous franchise business in the world, it's McDonald's. Now, does McDonald's succeed because they make the best hamburgers? I don't think that's it. 
do they succeed because they only hire the best and the brightest? <laughs> I don't think that's it either. There's plenty of people working in the business in McDonald's, flipping the burgers, dipping the fries, running the cash registers. But there are some brilliant people working behind the scenes who are developing systems, who are actually working on the business, figuring out how a business actually works and how to help people who may not have a great skill set, but how to help those people be successful. Now, when it comes to working in the business on a farm or a ranch, that's tilling the field, planting the crop, harvesting the crop, feeding the cows, fixing the fence, mending the pipelines, vaccinating the calves. And we were fabulous at that. That's working in the business. Working on the business is figuring out, should we even have cows? And if we should have cows, should they be our cows? And should they be here year-round, or should they be going off somewhere else uh, seasonally? Or should it be stockers? And maybe it should be custom cattle instead of owning cattle. Uh, and if we do have cows and we do own the cows, when should they be calving? What's the, cal what's the best production schedule to fit this? That's working on it. And we are so busy working in it, we don't take time to work on it. And as a result, we don't really own businesses. Most farms and ranches are not businesses. They are just a giant collection of very expensive assets and a whole bunch of low-paying, physically demanding jobs. When I bought Ranch Management Consultants from its founder, Stan Parsons, mm -hmm. uh, 25, about 25 years ago, a friend of mine was visiting, and this is about six months into it, and he, he could see the stress. I mean, it was palpable. I says, Dave, how's this going? And I turned to him and I said, well, at least, at least we bought ourselves a job. And sometimes you have to hear the lunacy of something out loud to realize how crazy things have become. At that point, I turned to my wife. She turned back at me and said, that's exactly what we've done. We don't own a business. We own a job. We didn't buy a business. From that point on, we committed to one another that we are going to turn this into a business. And we did. Uh, I bought a pile of assets and a bunch of jobs, and I sold a business. I uh, sold it about four years ago to one of my instructors. One of the things I like to talk to people about because no, I, don't, I don't hear anybody else talking about economics and finance but there's an, in, in agriculture. But there's another piece of this I don't hear anybody talking about either, and that's the people part. How do, you, how do you work with your kids? How do you hold your kids accountable or your parents accountable or your spouse accountable in the business without having it turn into a food fight at the dinner table? One of the things Kathy and I did when we bought the company is that, that was really the first thing we needed to figure out. How are we going to work together in this thing to make sure that I'm not duplicating she's doing, she's not duplicating things I'm doing, in the meantime, other things are going completely undone. And so that's a big part of what it takes to build a business is get that people part right, and then, of course, the economics and finance. But I don't think a business has ever failed because of economics and finance. It's not because I'm brilliant or anything, but I have yet to see a situation, at least I can't remember one, that was that we couldn't figure out an economic or a financial solution. But getting people to embrace the solution, or if there's a husband and wife or maybe a brother, getting everybody to agree on the solution and the next steps forward, you know, everything turns out to be a people problem in the end. And I don't hear anybody else dealing with that stuff. Well, that brings up another thing that you talk about, and I think you explain very nicely. And this really struck me because I had never thought of this before. Is this, there is a difference between economics and finance. There's actually three issues when it comes to money. There's economics, there's finance, and there's taxes. Most people put those in the opposite order. Tax avoidance comes number one. In fact, you can go around the country and you'll see what I like to call monuments to tax avoidance. 
you know, to reduce your taxable income, the accountant says, well, if you're going to buy something, you know, equipment or building or something like that, do it now to reduce your tax liability. And we've surrounded ourselves with things that have helped us avoid taxes, but it makes it really hard to make a profit. I tell people we ought to aspire to have tax problems. All right, so taxes come last. We'll, we'll, deal, we'll try to avoid the taxes, but not until we've built a profitable, financially secure business. The first issue ought to be economics. And economics boils down to one very simple question. Is this profitable? I guess another way to say that would be, should I do this thing? As opposed to finance, which is, can I do this thing? You know, where does the capital come from to get this started? And if I do find the capital, how does the cash flow? I mean, it could be very profitable. Here's... Let's say I come up with a $100,000 investment, and at the end of the year, I've turned it into $200,000. But that doesn't happen till the end of the year. That's a really profitable thing to do. Economically, it works. Financially, the questions would be, where the heck am I going to come up with $100,000? Right? Well, let's say I find it, either sell something or I borrow the money. The next question is, how does the cash flow? You know, can I survive until all that profit is made at the end of the year? So that's finance. So economics, should I do it, must come before can I do it. I mean, I mean, consider this. Let's say we put finance first, all right? And I say, okay, I found the money, and I can make the cash flow. But let's say we lose $80,000 that year. Do you really want to do that? Do you want to, do you want to fund that venture? So while you can do it, do you want to do it? And the answer ought to be no. So economics comes first, finance comes second, and taxes like I said, we ought to aspire to have tax problems. Those are good problems to have. One of the things when you were talking about this, going back a little bit to working on your business as opposed to in your business, the thing that you talk a lot about is this idea of it's really the difference between owning a business and owning a job, or as you said, the job owning you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's a lot of people don't, again, and I think of farmer, the farmers that I see, it's so... That's so the situation is that even though they think that they're running a business, it's become a job that they're kind of managing almost, and then, you know, it becomes overwhelming. There's no question that regardless of how you structure things, that agriculture is physically demanding. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I like, I like physically demanding work as much as anybody. We have been taught a work ethic that says physically demanding work, hard work is to be valued. I think hard work is a waste of time unless it's producing the results that you need. Uh, there's a story I'm going to tell tomorrow, actually a video I'm going to show of a rancher in Montana who was so busy working, he was missing the kids' basketball games, he wasn't able to go to church, he didn't have a life, it was all about work. You know, put up hay all summer long to feed cows all winter long, and along the way there was no time for family or, or anything else. He's also driving a school bus uh, five days a week to make ends meet. Well, when we started talking to him about working on the business, not just in it, but working on it, he discovered that it took something like 30 cows to replace the net income. That's, the net income of 30 cows would replace every penny the school bus was making. Now, for him, it was relatively easy to find two mornings a week. And that's what we talked. He could have found five mornings a week to work on it. We tell people that if they'll take two mornings a week to work on it, that that's probably going to be enough to really turn things around. There's an old rule in business called the Pareto Principle. Pareto Principle is also called the 80-20 rule. 80% of the work you do winds up giving you 20% of the result. 20% of the work you do gives you 80% of the result. We think that 20% 
is the what be work, the working on the business. The 80% is the what be. Now, if you work a five-day week, and I don't think I've ever met, well, actually, I have met some ranchers and farmers who do work a five-day week, but they didn't before they came to the program we do. If you work a five-day week, what's 20% of five? 20% of five is two. That doesn't add up, does it? All right. But add two mornings together and you have a full day. And that's why I say two, two mornings. And why would it be mornings to work on it and not afternoons? When are you sharpest? When are you most alert? When are you most able to engage uh, in a focused conversation about difficult issues? At the end of the day, when you're exhausted from all the physically demanding $10 an hour work we've done, or first thing in the morning? First thing in the morning is what we call our $100 an hour time. And that's when we need to be doing our $100 an hour work. Problem is we're so busy doing $10 an hour jobs in the morning, we, we can't get it done. And if we do try to do it at the end of the day, we're just not very good at it. Which gets down to another thing. When it comes to working on the business, it's not just the words, I've got to work on the business. But how? I mean, growing up, you learned how to set a brace, you learned how to vaccinate a calf, you learned how to, how to harvest a crop, you learned how to do the physical work. You learned how to work in it. Right. No one ever taught you to work on it. Even if you have a degree in economics or business, they still didn't teach you how to work on your business. Mm -hmm. Robert Kiyosaki is best known for writing a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think he wrote a book called Cash Flow Quadrant. I think that came before Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant, he says there's four, actually four ways to make money. You can make money as an employee where you trade your time, you know, you have a job, you trade your time for a paycheck. You can be self-employed, in which case you own your job. And he would say you work for the worst employer ever. You work for a lunatic, he would say. <laughs> um, because nobody holds, well, a whole bunch of reasons. But the second way is to be self-employed where you own your job. Mm -hmm. The third way to make money is as a business owner. You're the, now the guy that hires the employee, and you get the profit. Mm -hmm. And the last way to make money is as an investor. And you provide the capital to get the business going in exchange for, for a return on your money. If you're an employee or if you're self-employed, you have to show up. If you don't show up, things don't get done. If you're a business owner or an investor, you don't have to be there every day. And the way we put it is, if you're an employee or self-employed, you have to work for your money. If you're a business owner or investor, there's a lot of ways that your money works for you. But there's an even bigger tell on this. If you're self-employed or or have a job, and if I ask you what you want, you'll begin explaining it by telling me what you don't want. I don't want debt. I don't want to work so hard. I don't want weeds. I don't want this. I don't want that. If you're a business owner or an investor, and I ask you what you want, you'll begin your, your answer to me by telling me what you want. Oh, I'm trying to build this. I'm trying to create this. There's two basic kinds of motivation, I think. One is fear. Staying out of the, the crisis, you know, we're, we're so driven by crisis to avoid all the bad things. So that's what self-employed, and this might be a little bit of an overstatement, but I don't think it's a big one. If you're self-employed or if you have a job, your focus is on keeping bad things from happening. If you're a business owner or investor, your focus is on making something good happen. So we can either continue to run away from, you know, keep all the, suppress all the negative things, which is, makes us feel indispensable. I mean, crisis management is an adrenaline rush, but adrenaline is intended to be this pulse that fight or flight, that's what we're built for. We're not built to continually be under that kind of pressure. Mm -hmm. And if you look at people in, the hosp in hospitals, 
most of the things that people are in hospitals for are stress-related illnesses, as opposed to the other kind of motivation, which is running towards the thing you do want. You know, waking up in the morning saying, I want that. I can't wait to take another step towards that today. And that's really what this is about. I think that's a really important piece because we talk a lot about return on investment, but it's a little bit like, you know, puppies and apple pie. People think it sounds great, but I don't think they quite understand. And you really, this 100% rule, I think, is a really good piece. And it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive what some people think when they think about investing in something and getting a return on it. I think when most people hear it, they roll their eyes and they think, oh, yeah, it'd be nice, but gee, it won't work here. We can't, there's nothing like that here. I have yet to come to a, a ranch or a farm where we couldn't find that investment. What the 100% rule says, for every dollar of capital I invest in something, I need to get all of it back, 100% of it back this year. So let's take an example of putting in a water development, maybe a fencing project, and it's going to cost, let's say it's going to cost $50,000 to do it. All right, well, I've got to get $50,000 back this year. Let's say the gross margin of a cow, and a lot of people don't know what a gross margin is, but a gross margin is a measure of the economic efficiency of a cow. It's the contribution she makes toward paying profit, to, to making a profit, to covering overheads and making a profit. So let's say a cow produces a $500 gross margin. That would be a little higher than what even a good cow would do these days. But if this investment is going to be $50,000, then I need to be able to run, I've got to do the math quickly here, I'd need to be able to run 500 divided into 50,000 is 100. So that'd be, I have to be able to run 100 more cows because of that. Well, what about buying the cows? Okay, the question is, do they have to be my cows? So now let's say I can run custom cows for $250. I can get $250 net from running custom cows for six months. Well, then I'd need to be able to run 100 custom cows for six months to cover that. Well, let's say that the improvement only results in being able to run 50 more custom cows. Well, that only generated $25,000. It only produced 50% of the investment, not 100%. So how could I still make this rule apply? Well, I could finance the project. I'll borrow half the money. So I'm putting in $25,000 this year, and the cows are giving me $25,000 of income. And next year, I'll put in the other $25,000, and the cows give me another $25,000 of income. Maybe better yet, I only put $10,000 in, and that way I net $15,000 this year and next year and next year. And then, you know, and after a couple of years, it's absolutely free and clear. But it's 100% return on your capital. And the reason we think that's important is because a lot of people have been convinced to put in projects and developments that have a seven-year payback or a 10-year payback, and then there's a drought or there's some other thing. But it's not good enough. We need to get our money back now. We also need to – agriculture is such a – at least historically, traditionally, it's such a capital-intensive endeavor. The barrier to somebody starting up in this, in this business because of that is enormous – at least if they do it the way it's been done traditionally. You know, if you don't inherit it or if you haven't made a ton of money somewhere else, you're simply not going to get into agriculture, in, at least in a conventional way. So if you're going to do it, you have to do it unconventionally, which means we've got to find another way than having this be so capital intensive, which actually gets to another thing. There's two primary places where you put money in a business. There's fixed assets and there's working capital. Simply put, fixed assets are things you intend to keep. Uh, machinery, vehicles, land, buildings, mm -hmm. infrastructure, cows, 
Cows are fixed assets. Here's the test. Do I hope every cow is dry and empty so I can cull her out of the herd this year, or do I hope she's wet and pregnant so I can keep her? We hope she's wet and pregnant so we get to keep her. So a cow is a fixed asset. As opposed to working capital. Simply put, working capital are the things we intend to sell and the inputs that go into those things. So the feed bill, the labor, or the salaries and benefits, things like that. Uh, the calves, stalker cattle, those, that would be working capital. Now think about where the majority of most farmers and ranchers' money is. By far and away, land would be the biggest fixed asset of all. But then you've got the machinery, the buildings, the equipment, all this stuff, and the cows. And then think about the proportion that's actually in working capital. Well, it's probably about 95% in fixed assets. Maybe more than that on a lot of places. And the problem with that is twofold. As long as all of our money is tied up in things we intend to keep, we don't have anything left over to sell. And so on the balance sheet, everybody's a millionaire, multi-millionaire, $10 million, $20 million in some of these places, producing a cash flow about that big. <laughs> you know, it's producing uh, just this meager, meager cash flow from this enormously valuable asset. And then the double whammy on this is those fixed assets, I mean, ironically, they're the way we measure somebody's wealth. I mean, whoa, look at the fancy stuff they've got. But they are huge constraints to creating wealth because, one, they lock up our money, so it's all tied up in things we intend to keep instead of things we intend to sell. But those fixed assets are expensive to maintain, not just to buy, but to maintain. We've got insurance. We've got depreciation. We've got repairs. We've got maintenance. We've got interest payments that we're making on. And so that little bit of cash flow that we generate from the working capital guess where it all goes? It goes to maintaining those fixed assets. Right. And so we're, we're well, well, the way we put it is you're wealthy on the balance sheet and you're broke at the bank. And that's why. And it doesn't have to be that way. It, it's very difficult for people who grew up in this industry to objectively look at other, other possibilities, other scenarios. But somebody new coming into this thing, unless it's going to be just a hobby, and there's nothing wrong with a hobby, although farming and ranching is a really expensive hobby. Unless it's going to be a hobby, if it's going to be a business, you have to take another approach. And this issue of fixed assets and working capital, it turns out that that is the biggest financial problem in all of agriculture. And if you're going to start out and want to make a profit in this thing, you've got to hit that problem head on right out of the gate. And it's not about the, and this may, again may surprise some people, it's not about the maximum productivity per cow or even per acre, is it? No. The most productive business is rarely the most profitable. It's rarely the most profitable. And, and you know, it's interesting because this idea of it's not running a ranch like a business. Mm -hmm. No, it's turning a ranch or a farm into a business. My daughter is an actress. She's been in Super Bowl commercials. She's been in some movies. Her love is Shakespeare, right? Um, Shakespeare doesn't pay the bills. The commercials pay the bills. I mean, Shakespeare is hard for me. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to, I have to spend some time interpreting this stuff to try to figure out what, did this, what does this mean? But I wonder, how the heck does she remember the dialogue? How does she memorize this stuff? And she said it's easy. And it's because an actor, it, acting is a lousy name for the profession because they don't act. At least my daughter doesn't act. She becomes. She says, look, I'm not acting like I'm this character. I become the character. And if it's a well-written script, this is what that character would automatically say in that situation. So, yeah, there is some memorization that goes on, but it's so much easier if it's a well-written script. But the point is, I'm not acting. I become. You can pretend, you can act as though the farm or ranch is a business, but acting is not sustainable. It's going to become whatever it really is, and you'll behave 
accordingly. If it's a business, you'll behave accordingly. And I think some people are intimidated by that. You know, oh, it's going to be hard. We're, it's going to reduce our quality of life. Our experience has been just the opposite, that when you transform a farm or a ranch into a real business, quality of life improves. I think the reason we tell ourselves that story, oh, it's going to be hard, is because we don't know how to do it. No one ever showed us. Growing up, it's not something we learned. You talk about instead of focusing on that productivity per animal or per acre, you need to talk about margin per unit. Can you give an example of that or what that actually, and talk about what that actually means and what, what would be a good example that somebody might see? Most people in this industry are focused on break-even costs. Mm-hmm. They're almost obsessed with break-even costs. I've never cared about a break-even cost. There's no diagnostic value in knowing a break-even cost. If you tell me your break-even cost is X, I don't know how to improve it. Should I re- reduce? Do, do my cows need to be more productive? Do I need to be more efficient with my pasture? Is it a labor issue? There's no way of knowing. So there's no point in knowing a break-even cost. In, in fact, it, you know, the program we do is called Ranching for Profit. It's not called Ranching for Breaking Even. <laughs> Think, well, let's take this to a football game, all right? Let's uh, use a sports metaphor here. If uh, the Golden Gophers, right, they're up by three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. There's five minutes left in the game. They're going to go play a de- prevent defense, right? So the other team is going to – they haven't – they haven't scored, they haven't gotten any significant gains, but now they're going to start moving the ball, right? And they score a touchdown. Maybe they score two touchdowns. But the whole idea of prevent defense is that we're going to use up the clock, we'll let them move the ball, they just don't have enough time to win the game. You don't start the game playing prevent defense, right? You've got, to get a lead. You've got to be on offense. You've got to go out there to win this game. Only at the very end do you play prevent defense. I think most farmers and ranchers start the game on prevent defense. We're trying not to lose. It's not a matter of winning. We're just trying to hang on and not lose. Rather than playing not to lose, if you're going to play to win, we're trying to make a, winning means making a profit yeah. and, and getting the other things out of the business that we want. We want to have some fun. We don't want to have time. But when it comes to profit, there's only three things that any business anywhere can do to increase profit. One is to lower overheads. Those are the land and labor costs. The second one is to improve the gross margin per unit. Gross margin per unit measures the economic efficiency of production. And the third thing is to increase the scale of the business, the the turnover, the number of units we have in the business. Gross margin per unit measures the value of production and subtracts the cost directly associated with that production. That would be things like interest on the cow note, uh, feed costs, health-related costs, preg check, uh, things like that. So we subtract those from the value the animal produces, and that gives us gross margin. We divide that by the number of animal units, and that gives us the gross margin per unit. If I have steers this way, I can compare them to cows, because an animal unit is not the individual animal. A thousand, well, let's take a, a lot of people around here would have 1,300, 1,400-pound cows. Mm -hmm. That's 1.4 animal units. Uh, Add the calf to that. Let's say we wean a calf at 600 pounds after six months. That would add about... 0.3 0.3 animal units. So the cow-calf unit is one 1,400-pound cow with her calf for the year would be 1.7 animal units. Whatever the gross margin is, we would divide by that number, as opposed to a steer. Right? Let's say we have a 500-pound steer. We're getting it to gain up to 800 pounds. So if we calculate that out, we're going to find out that that's about uh, 600, uh, 0.65 animal units. If we look at the gross margin of a steer, the economic efficiency of a steer versus the economic efficiency of a cow on a particular pasture, that's the way we'd figure it out. Total gross margin divided by that unit. Okay. And what it's really measuring is the efficiency with which you're, we're using our grass. 
the gross margin per unit of graphs that we're using. That's what gross margin per unit really measures. Could you just touch briefly on the role paradigms play in all this? Because this is all sounds great, but unless people can change their mindset, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of what a paradigm is, but can you just mm. describe that and, wh- and how important that is in all of this decision-making? You asked for a brief answer? <laughs> this, this is me you're talking to. <laughs> paradigm is a set of subconscious beliefs that we hold. And we have paradigms about all sorts of things. Um, we have paradigms about the way you raise kids. We have political paradigms, religious paradigms, and we certainly have paradigms about the way you raise cattle mm-hmm. and grow crops. If you want to get a different result, you have to do things differently. But you will not do things differently until you see things differently. In the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People program, Stephen Covey called this see, do, get. What I see determines what I do. What I do determines what I get. If I want to get different results, I need to do things differently. But I will not do, I cannot do things differently until I see things differently. Give you an example. Growing up, I was raised by my mom. Uh, We didn't have a lot of money. If I needed money when I was a little kid, hey, mom, can I have five bucks? She wouldn't hand it over. She'd say, well, there's some extra chores you can do to earn it. Or maybe the neighbor has some work for you. And the lesson I learned is I had to work for my money. To make more money, I had to do more work. That's the lesson you learn. But it turns out that that's not the only way to look at money. Remember, we could, be, we could have a job. That's what my mom taught me. More work, more money. Have a job, make money. I could be self-employed, in which case I could own my job. But she didn't say, Dave, why don't you start a small business? Or why don't you invest? You'll get a return on your money that way. She never taught me about those things. So the paradigm I grew up with about money was I had to work to make money, and the more work I did, the more money I'd make. And that is a physically exhausting, very limiting paradigm because there's only so many hours in the day. Think about your paradigm about, about what it takes to be profitable in the cow-calf business. Right? What's the key to profitability in the cow-calf business? And a lot of people would say it's weaning a high percentage of calves or weaning big calves. Okay, so if that's my belief, what will I do? Well, I'm going to probably put a lot of feed into those cows. Um, I'm prob- if I think the key is to have a big calf, if that's what I believe, I'm probably going to have big cows. And what's the result I get? I get a big calf. I probably lose my shirt, but I get a big calf. Yeah. Until I change my belief and understand, not just in your head, but in your heart, that's where paradigms really change. You understand in your heart that, no, that's not the key to making a profit in the cow-calf business, that the most productive business is rarely the most profitable, Uh, that the key is to have cows with a good gross margin. How do you define a good cow? What is a good cow? And some people are going to say it's a cow that weans a calf every year or a low-input cow that weans a calf every year or a trouble-free cow or whatever it might be. If you're ranching for profit, there's only one way to answer that question. It's a good cow is a cow with a good gross margin. I had some cattle way back when. Uh, in California, everybody's calving in the fall. Uh, that's because the grass is growing in uh, February, March, April. And it's pretty well done in May. We're a Mediterranean-type environment. So they want that calf big enough and with a well-developed rumen so it can really thrive on that green spring grass. Mm -hmm. And then they'll wean it in May. It's a very productive production schedule. Everybody's losing money doing it. So what we did is took a look at when are the deer having their fawns, when are the elk having their calves. And it turns out it's the first part of April. So we changed the calving season to April, six months out of whack with everybody else. When everybody else was dumping their open cows on the market, That's exactly when we needed to buy our replacements. So we would buy replacements, essentially other people's cull animals as our replacements. 
and we would actually sell our cull animals into the market when it was much higher, we would sell our cull animals for more than we paid for our replacements. Now, our cows weren't as productive, but we took our supplement costs because we didn't have to feed them in the winter. And up here, you might have to feed something, although we have a lot of guys who can graze through two feet of snow without a problem. But we took our supplement costs from over $300 per cow per year to $13 a cow a year. The cow didn't need to product, be as productive. We didn't need to wean as big a calf. We didn't need to get as much for a calf because we took so much of the cost out of the, the way things were done. But if I believed I had to wean a big calf, there's no way we could have done that. I believed that I had to have a good gross margin on a cow and that that was the definition of a good cow. And that's it. if I hadn't had that belief, we wouldn't have made those changes. You did a piece on where you went through kind of, it was a little bit of a myth-busting piece on this, a very important piece, which we're dealing with here and everybody's dealing with in, in any agricultural area in, in the world, uh, but especially here in North America, which is transitioning the operation onto the next generation and estate planning. Um, it's a big issue. We, we're holding classes on it. We're helping farmers transition both within their family and outside of their family, but it's a real tough issue. And one of the things I really liked, and I don't, you don't need to go through all of them because I think there was a couple dozen pieces where you kind of myth-busted transitions to the next generation and estate planning issues. But could you just highlight a couple of those? There was, I thought that was a really good piece where you kind of, some things, again, where people need to maybe think a little deeper about what, 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 what is the best way to, to approach this? What is the paradigm we should be approaching this with? I think my, maybe the most important paradigm is that you don't owe your kids an inheritance. And I blame parents when their kids do expect an inheritance because that expectation from, comes from the parents. Uh, someday this will all be yours. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe. Inheritance is either a transfer or a gift. And by a transfer, I mean just transferring an asset from one balance sheet to another. What's the difference between that and a gift? Well, there's spirit to a gift. I've heard it said that there's no such thing as a free gift. And I think that's probably true. If somebody gives me something, I, feel a, I, I do feel an obligation to at least say thank you and to treat the gift with respect and maybe use it in a way that I think they intended me to use it. Um, so there are some obligations there, but it's the spirit with which inheritance is, is given. Is it a gift or is it a transfer? When it's most successful, inheritance is a gift. And gifts can be given for different reasons. They can be given based on need. They can be give, given to make things equal. They can be given to control someone. I'm going to give you this, but you've got to do it my way. Mm -hmm. Or they can be given to liberate somebody. Uh, I think another paradigm that gets into that is that relates to that is fair and equal not being the same thing. Not to share too much personal dirt, uh, he passed away about 20 years ago. My wife had a, a brother who had cerebral palsy and was bedridden his entire life. He was supposed to die when he was 8 or 10 years old. He lived to be in his late 40s. If he were still alive today and I was Kathy's parents, I would leave a disproportionate amount of my estate to, to him because he needs the care. Uh, whereas the other kids are all up and, you know, Kathy and I are doing fine. Joe and Linda are doing fine. We're, we're great. We don't need it. Gary needed it. This idea that we have to be equal with the equal distribution of assets is fair, I think is just nonsense. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an intellectual cop-out. And you get people disagree with that, but I, you're not going to convince me any different of that. Uh, my sister actually got a little more, maybe 
maybe double what I did as an inher inheritance, which was only fair because my mom had Alzheimer's and there was, I'm starting to tear up thinking about it. The last, there was four years of her decline where she lived, we built a house on my sister's farm and she, she lived on my sister's farm. And I would go up there twice a week, but my sister was there every day. Right. And when mom would go out wondering where she was and just such a sad situation, right. my sister was the one that would go out and gently bring her back. You know, fair and equal, two way different things. Mm -hmm. I love my kids equally. They have different needs. Right. They have different interests. For me to treat them equally would be crazy. I don't treat them, uh, I don't treat them, this. I should say this, I don't treat them the same. I treat them differently. I love them equally, mm -hmm. but I treat them differently. And so I think maybe that those two things, one is that succession is yeah. not an, an entitlement, it's a gift, and two, that fair and equal, two way different things. Because agriculture and farming, ranching, it is so family-oriented, so tied in with the family with the kids working on the farm, and mm -hmm. some are interested in, in taking that farm on, some are not. And also, it's important to kind of lay out some of the bottom line facts for the children of farmers and ranchers so that they maybe can decide early on, fairly early on, this is something I'm, in, I'm interested in doing. Because if they kind of know clear cut, here's, here's some of the the issues that uh, we're, we're gonna, these are some of the, the uh, I guess, paradigms that we're going to be operating under here. You know, succession is mapping out the transfer and who's going to run what, whereas uh, estate planning is mapping out who's going to own what. I think one of the reasons most of our estate planning is terrible is because it's not based on what we want to have happen. It's based on what we don't want to have happen. Mm. We don't want to pay estate taxes. And of course, if you're the one that's dying, you're not going to be the one paying the estate taxes, right, so right. don't worry about it. But, um, but there are ways of dealing with estate tax. But we, the plans tend to focus on preventing the things you don't want from happening from happening. And often there isn't enough thought to what you do want to have happen. And it puts the next generation in an impossible situation to be successful. So, it, but this, you know, ties back to what we were talking about is tax avoidance and finance and economics. Uh, taxes, worry about that after everything else is figured out. That farms and ranches are failing doesn't bother me. Survival of the fittest doesn't apply to ranching. Because of the way we've chosen to subsidize our operations with off-farm income, inherited wealth, and, and all the rest of it. If survival of the fittest did apply to ranching, we'd have better ranches. They'd be ecologically healthy. You will not find a profitable ranch that is ecologically getting sicker. But survival of the fittest doesn't apply to ranching because of, of these subsidies. But where we do see it is that the second or third generation gets fed up and can't do it anymore, which opens up the playing field. The problem with opening up the playing field is the price of land has gone so high that startups that have the right paradigms that have a, a, a paradigm that understands what it's going to take to make a profit, have a really tough time making it. Our ranch management consultant's mission is healthy land, happy families, and profitable businesses. Our Australian counterparts have a very similar mission, but it goes one step further. It's healthy land, happy families, profitable businesses, and thriving communities. Now, that's kind of the silent, that's the unspoken part of our mission. That's a big deal to us, but when you di drive through rural America and you see that it's dying. It's be, it's because people in agriculture don't. It's because it's not a business. Mm -hmm. It's a lifestyle. It's a 
collection of assets and a bunch of jobs. And if it was a business, the whole thing would change. So what happened to agriculture? Were we ever at a state where these farms were businesses, these ranches were businesses, or did something change? No, it's never, it's never been a business, and it didn't have to be. It was easier. If you go back about 30 years and look at land prices versus cattle prices, land prices have gone up over five times faster than cattle prices. Uh, fuel costs have gone up about double what cattle prices have gone up. So it wasn't a business back then, but it didn't need to be because it was easier. It was just a whole lot easier than... A little caveat here, no one ever said a great business had to be a great big business. My sister's got a great farm. Uh, it's a great business. It's 10 acres. It's not a big business, but it's a great business. No one ever said it had to be a full-time gig either. But because it's more difficult now than it used to be, the old ways of doing things just don't cut it. Uh, we, have to, we have to be better. We have to be a lot smarter about this than we've been in the past. For more information on building soil health profitably, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 308 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 